0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, God's Rescue Plan, with a message titled, Moses and His Signs. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: Have you ever doubted your faith? I mean, have you? Have you, in some dark moment, wondered, is it all true? Did Christ die on the cross for my sins? Did he rise from the dead? I mean, will my death really usher me into the Father's presence? Or will I simply cease to exist? I've known all sorts of Christians who sometimes lapse into doubts. You know, some say it's inexplicable. I don't know why my mind goes there, but it does. In almost every case, I like to ask, what would, in your mind, constitute proof? I mean, what would you need in order to convince you a your doubts and fears? And before the answer, you know, I like to add, and don't say God would have to reveal himself to me. I mean, for one, no one can see God and live. And second, since God is spirit, what exactly do you expect to see when you see God? See, another problem is the problem of visions. How can you be sure that your vision isn't a problem in your brain? I mean, why wouldn't you just quickly come to the conclusion that what you saw was simply an internal mental condition? You know, I know of one woman, and I believed her. She told me she heard a voice telling her that he was God and that as she was driving to take her hands off the steering wheel in her car. And yeah, she had an accident. And what I found fascinating in her case is that she was so very rational. She told me, I know it all sounds crazy, and yet the voice was real and audible. I mean, we spent some time talking our way through that and coming to a conclusion that what had occurred was not God at all. I mean, perhaps it was a psychotic incident. That's possible. Perhaps it was some nefarious spiritual source that it came from. I and mean, perhaps it was something else, but it was definitely not God. And I speak of this because the question of what constitutes proof is not easily arrived at. And Jesus knew that. I mean, there were all manner of people who were witnesses to his activities and yet still did not believe. And at one point, recorded in John 14, even his own disciples were struggling with doubt. And so in John 14, verse 11, he says, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. That is, examine the miracles that I've done in your presence and ask yourself, what's the explanation for that? Go back over what's happened, work your way through it. Now, I use all of that as an introduction to our study in Exodus today. Moses, as we've seen, has been asked to do something that had we not read the book of Exodus before, would seem like a movie that we would call Against All Odds. I mean, Moses is told first, go gather the elders of Israel and convince them that God has spoken to you and that you're now their leader and that you're gonna bring them out of Egypt. Next, take the leaders to Pharaoh and demand that they'll release Israel for an indeterminate amount of time. And next, Pharaoh's going to say, no, but wait, God's going to destroy Pharaoh's power and then plunder all the Egyptians. Now, that's a tall order. And in case we're easily prone to condemn Moses for a lack of faith and his stumbling around as doubt, please remember your own doubts and fears. So let's start with Exodus 4, verse 1. And Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. That is, Moses could not get beyond that first proposition. I mean, he could imagine that he would call a meeting with the elders, and he couldn't believe that they would accept the proposition that God had called him to lead Israel out of Egypt and that Israel would follow his leadership. I mean, never mind what Pharaoh would do. The entire thing would die after he met with the elders of Israel. Now, for those of us who are very familiar with the entire Pentateuch, you're going to remember that the leadership of Moses was challenged many times. And so this, this idea that Israel wouldn't accept his leadership, that's not unrealistic. See, Moses is balking precisely because he seems to know something of human nature and about Israel. Israel's not easily going to accept what God has spoken. Now Jesus understood that, and that's why in the Gospel of John, John refers to Jesus' miracles as signs. You know, like a road sign, it points to a reality. The miracles are not just wow moments, and and even though they do demonstrate God's compassion on those who are suffering, the miracles are signs because they tell us that God's among us. They tell us of the character of God. They tell us that the kingdom of God has come. Now, Moses thinks something has to be given the elders of Israel so they will believe. And simply Moses' word on the matter, he thinks, is not going to convince them. Now, while on a human plane, Moses is certainly correct. And yet, Moses has seriously discounted God's promise. God has said that he would cause the elders of Israel to believe. Nonetheless, God condescends to Moses' concerns. He's going to give Moses three signs. Now, before we dive right into the signs that God gives Moses, I think it right to understand that God could have given Moses any number of signs. I mean, he could have caused Moses to walk on the Nile, just like Jesus walked on the Sea of Galilee. He could have caused a massive earthquake, as was later the case when God came down onto Mount Sinai. I mean, why couldn't God come down in the land of Goshen and cause the whole of Egypt to quake? I mean, that would have convinced everyone. So I'm trying to get at something here, so hang in with me. The three signs that Moses is given are designed specifically for a purpose. And our task is going to be more than simply reviewing what the signs are, but finding out why those three were given. And after we've done that, we're going to need to ask if any of that helps us to believe when our faith is lacking. So let's examine the three signs. And the first one is found in Exodus 4, 2-5. The Lord said to Moses, What is in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said throw it on the ground so he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and moses ran from it but the lord said to moses put out your hand and catch it by the tail so he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the lord the god of their fathers the god of abraham the god of isaac and the god of jacob has appeared to you now we could at this time speak a great deal of the staff of moses In terms of what it looked like, I mean, we have to assume that it was a staff that was used by shepherds to direct sheep as well as catch any of them that were trying to escape. It's a shepherd's staff. Now, in the future, however, that same staff will symbolize Moses as being shepherd over the people of Israel. Exodus 4 verse 20 will call this the staff of God. It will demonstrate that while Moses holds it, he's doing it under God's direction. Now, Moses will also later use this staff to command the plagues that will come upon Egypt. So in Exodus 14, he'd stretch out his staff over the Red Sea, and it would divide, permitting Israel to go through on dry ground. And then in Exodus 17, Moses would stand on a mountain, hold out the staff in the battle of Rephidim, as Israel would defeat Amalek. See, the staff, as time goes on, is going to become a symbol that Moses leads by the power of God. It's the staff of his authority. And that's an important part of this account. Now, Moses is supposed to take that very same staff, throw it on the ground, and it becomes a snake. So why a snake? Well, some have suggested the reason for that is because back in, you know, Genesis chapter three, as Satan comes into the garden, he takes upon himself the shape of a serpent. See, I don't think that's the explanation for this at all. As we go on in our study, we're going to see that the book of Exodus is a declaration that Yahweh, the God, who is the only true God, is in control. We're also going to need to learn some things about the gods of Egypt, as well as the Egyptian power structures. The snake, that was a symbol of Egypt. Wadjet was an early Egyptian goddess who was said to control and protect the land. And later in time, that snake became an image. That image was engraved on the Egyptian crowns. You know, it came to symbolize Pharaoh's sovereignty as well as his divine authority to protect the land of Egypt. Everyone in Egypt, including the slaves, understood the snake as the symbol of Pharaoh's power to protect everything. Now, imagine what Moses is supposed to do. He has the staff of a shepherd, appointed to shepherd the people of Israel. He throws it on the ground and it becomes a snake. That snake is like the snake of authority in Egypt. Then he takes the snake by the tail and it becomes his staff. The point of this act would not have been lost. No matter how threatening that snake was, Israel was being taught not to fear that threat. Moses had been given authority to take that authority by the tail and cause it to submit to the staff in his hand. And so we have a combination of two things. First, clearly, this act of throwing down the staff and it becoming a real live snake and then picking it up by the tail. It's again transformed into a staff. It's not something that's done by sleight of hand. It's a genuine miracle. And that would not have been lost, that these aren't parlor tricks. These are miracles and the miracles are a sign. All of the authority of Pharaoh and his gods and goddesses, as well as the authority over his land, was something that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had called his servant Moses to reach out, take a hold of it, and bring it under the authority of Moses' staff. You think about that, the world, the future, the world's rulers, the world's religious systems are all under the power of the God who is the God who exists, who never changes. All Earth's powers are grasped by Him and they're subject to Him. Fear nothing but God.
0: The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like no other. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our most recent trip said, listening to Pastor John teach the Bible while looking and breathing the air where the events he speaks about may have actually happened puts doubts of the authenticity of the Bible to rest. So make plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming spring from April 16th to the 24th, 2023 and consider the optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. Join us in the Holy Land with on-location teaching from Dr. John Newfeld and wonderful evenings of entertainment with Laugh Gaines Phil Calloway and very special musical guest, Amanda Stott. For more information, the trip itinerary or registration forms, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: I suppose that God could have given Moses only one sign and that would have been enough. But giving three signs is intended to give the idea of nothing being greater. I mean, consider, for example, when Isaiah saw the Lord, he was in the temple and the seraphs were crying out, holy, but not just once, but three times. Holy, holy, holy. That's to say nothing can be more holy than this. And in that same vein, to give Moses three signs is to say, nothing could be greater in exciting the faith of the elders of Israel than these three signs. So let's look at the second one, Exodus 4, 6 to 8. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. You know, first, a small technical fact. The word leprosy, as it appears in our Bible, may not refer to what we call leprosy today. You know, technically what we call leprosy today is called Hansen's disease. It's an infection caused by a slow growing bacteria, and it affects the nerves, the skin, the eyes, and the lining of the nose. You know, the nerve damage often results in the lack of ability to feel pain. And because of that, a person may injure himself or herself and not feel it. And it often results in infections and also results in the loss of extremities like fingers and toes. It's really a horrible disease. In both the First Testament and the Final Testament, or our New Testament, what's called leprosy is not as specific as Hansen's disease. I mean, yeah, of course, it includes Hansen's disease, for that was also a problem in biblical times. But other skin infections were also called leprosy in that day. So leprosy can refer to anything from a rash to a number of other, in some cases, very serious infections in the skin. But the mere presence of a severe rash on the body, often left ancients with great fear. And in some cases, those rashes would clear, but in many cases, they didn't. And in severe cases, it would infect others and cause death. So the immediate reaction to having an infection on your skin was terror. And so Moses is told to put his hand into his cloak and he's to take it out and it's leprous like snow. That is to say, it's fully developed leprosy in which the disease has now taken hold, and it's deeply lodged into the skin. This is the cause of a painful and slow death. And we have to imagine Moses' shock as he pulls his hand out of his cloak. It's akin to going to your physician, having a series of tests, and being told, not only do you have cancer, but it's beyond all treatment. You know, Moses holds his breath. God tells him to put his hand in his cloak again, pull it out, and now the hand's restored. Again, as before, it's quite a miracle. But we've asked ourselves, as in the case of the staff and the snake, we ask ourselves why this miracle? Why this sign? What is it a sign of? As I've already hinted, leprosy was to the ancient world what cancer is to us. You know, it represented the disease that would come upon individuals, which once they had it, could be, could be a death sentence. And even if it wasn't, it represented a life of suffering and humiliation. And in ancient Israel, lepers were banished from outside the camp. I mean, so much was done to quarantine them so that they wouldn't become the source of infection to others. Now, there's more. In the ancient world, so much of their thinking equated disease with the power of the gods. The gods would punish by their power. And not just in the pagan nations. This is also true in our Bible, where the God of Israel punishes sometimes using leprosy. Now, that's not to say that the Bible says that leprosy is always a sign of God's punishment, but it can be. Now, uh, we have to imagine the sign to the elders of Israel. Moses would pull out his hand and display that which they feared, more even than the power of their slave taskmasters, leprosy. And then just like that, God would do that, which none of the other gods could do. He would take it away in an instant. Now, you might remember the Count of Naaman. He's the Syrian commander. He travels to Israel because he's been told that Israel's God can heal disease. No other God can And so Naaman comes to Israel with a letter. The Syrian king says, please cure this man of leprosy. And the king of Israel tears his robe as a sign of mourning. I mean, this guy, the king of Syria, he's looking for a fight with us. I mean, who am I, says the king of Israel. Am I God? And that's the point. It would have been the point of the second miracle as well. Moses by holding out his leprous hand would have to say, I know you fear Pharaoh, but you also fear his gods. But here, I'm showing you that the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is able to do far more than Pharaoh's gods can accomplish. If he can heal leprosy, he can lead you to the promised land. So two very powerful signs, both miracles and pointers to a greater reality. Now the third sign, Exodus four verse nine. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now again, those of us who know the book of Exodus know that Moses would cause the entire Nile to become blood. Now this act foreshadows that. You know, I've made mention that the God Happy was the God of the Nile. And unlike many other countries of the world, the Nile wasn't just an important waterway and a source of benefits in Egypt. The Nile was the lifeblood of the country. That's because Egypt was desert. It was filled with sand, unable to sustain any agriculture, were it not for the Nile. You see, every year the Nile would flood and it would fill the land with nutrients. Indeed, all of Egypt at the time of the Bible was only the black land that strip of arable land along the nile without the nile egypt couldn't exist taking water from the nile pouring it out on the ground it becomes blood on the ground rather than life and nourishment to the ground is to say i'm taking away the only source of life this land has god is threatening egypt with utter desolation so those three signs says god will then be the signs the elders of Israel will be given that I'm not only able to perform miracles, but that my power is so great that Israel is my favored nation and Egypt stands on the brink of ruin. I want then, in the time I have remaining, to come back to the idea of the proofs of God's existence and proofs of his power and proofs made to his covenant people. You know, I began to say that sometimes people doubt. I mean, is God there? Does God care? Is he interested in my individual life? Can I be assured that after death consumes my body, that, as Job of old said, and yet in my flesh, I will see God? I mean, to questions like these, I've you know, asked the greater question. What evidence do you need to satisfy the raging doubts in your mind and soul? And some would respond, well, I need a miracle. Now, let me say that miracles are neither to be sought after, nor are they to be dismissed. You know, a good passage to consider is John 2:23 to 24. It says now when he that is Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. See the problem with faith that's based on miracles is that it satisfies the question of whether God is there. It satisfies the question of whether he cares. But it doesn't deal with the real question. (laughs) What's the real question? The real question is the utmost question. Will we, after we have been given evidence, evidence enough to be convinced, will we then trust God when there are no signs at all? Or are we going to live our lives only to have a declining faith until it's pumped up one more time by one more miracle? That is, will we trust God when there are no miracles at all? Do You see, I hope you understand. If the only faith that you have is faith when you have been given evidence one more time for one more moment, well, that would mean when things get tough or when you suffer or when you're gonna be called upon to fight or when the outcome that you seek is further away than you thought, And you're going to have to go through a dry valley before you reach the other side. The question now becomes, will you only believe if one more miracle presents itself? If our only faith is when we see things, then we have not yet had faith at all. Because we must have a faith in a God that we cannot see. So the point of the three miracles that were shown to the elders of Israel is so that their minds might be satisfied that God is in control. Now, New Testament believers, we have more evidence than that. We have the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now the question comes to you. If God gives you a miracle or if he doesn't, will you still trust him? For he has given you all the evidence that you need.
0: Now is the time to believe. Thanks, John, and thanks for your message. Just a difficult question, I guess. What would you say to those who are suffering or continue to suffer? And it feels like God has not responded to their need.
1: God has responded to their need. Um, he is not unaware of their suffering. Uh, he will not subject them to more than they can bear. They need to recognize that. Uh, they need to also recognize that uh, God will Uh, continue to hear their prayers, they cry out to Him. And so they are encouraged to continue to cry out to God in those times. But they're also to remember that whatever the length of their suffering is, God has prepared for them an end for it. And then once the suffering is all over, um, they will recognize that uh, God has intended something so much better that came through the suffering.
0: Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every year, Back to the Bible Canada releases an annual scripture reading calendar. This is our most requested Bible resource. Well, the time has come to request your 2023 scripture calendar today with the theme, Freedom in Christ. Each month contains beautiful, thoughtfully selected images, inspirational Bible verses, encouraging quotes from Dr. John Newfeld, and a Bible reading plan that will help you read through the entire Bible in one year. We pray this calendar will inspire, keep you in the Word every day, and remind you of just how blessed we are to live freely in Christ. So for the month of October, request your copy of Freedom in Christ. But hurry, quantities are limited. To request your free copy, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.